Good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is John Henderson, one of the pastors and elders here at UBC. We're in the middle of a series called The Heart of the Kings, where we're just looking at a dozen or so kings of Israel and Judah and drawing out one defining feature from each of their reigns, one defining truth about God through their reigns, and one sort of big takeaway for us as we reflect on their story. And so this morning we're with Ahab and the evil and the patience of God. We'll start in 1 Kings 16, verse 29. Ahab actually gets quite a few chapters, and so we'll be covering a lot of ground as we just kind of summarize his reign this morning. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would humble us through your word this morning, that you would show us the evil that is in the human heart, that you would show us the patience that you have displayed in all your works, in all your ways toward us, and especially that patience that waited upon the moment that you ordained that you would give us hearts to believe, eyes to see our sin, to see our need for redemption, to see Christ the one who has lived and died and been raised for our salvation. It was your patience that brought us to repentance, your patience that waited for your spirit to be given, your patience that is a constant theme that you've proven across human history. So we pray that you would reveal that to us this morning and show us another reason to worship you to adore you, to trust you, to exalt you, to delight in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, main point you should have there in your notes, if you didn't grab them at the doors, we'll have little handouts where you can take notes for uh, this morning's ABF. Well, the main point there should be in the notes, the Lord patiently endures the evil of humanity so that we would believe the gospel. And be saved and worship him. It's probably a little over a year ago I was sitting on a plane uh, next to a woman back when you could sit on planes next to people. And we got into a conversation about just what I do and pastoral work and churches and the Bible. And, And she asked, well, if God is good, why is there so much evil in the world and why does it continue? You've probably heard the question before. It's a good question. It's a common question, and it started us down a really good conversation, good road. I said, firstly, there's so much evil in the world because the world is full of people who are evil and demons who are evil, and that's usually where you know, people's worldviews collide. Are people fundamentally good, or is there fundamentally wrong, something wrong with everyone who comes into the world? Second, I said, God endures all the evil in the world to show us just how patient he is. He's not the problem. People are the problem. Demons are the problem. And the reason evil persists is not because of a lack of God's goodness, but the extremity of his patience. He could simply and could have destroyed the world and moved on. But he's patient toward us so that his people would come to faith 
and be saved. Third, I said, no one has dealt more decisively with evil than God. It's this strange misperception that because there's evil in the world, God hasn't dealt with it or isn't dealing with it. So, so I shared with her just about the cross of Christ, about Calvary, about the Son of God crucified. If you want to see how decisively God has dealt with evil, look at the cross. How deeply God cares about dealing with evil, look at the cross. That's how serious he is. No one has done more, anywhere close to dealing with evil in this world than God. And he's not done yet dealing with it. So do you wonder if the Lord sees and cares about evil? Well, consider Ahab. That's what we'll do this morning. Do you think yourself above evil? Well, consider Ahab. Do you think you can put God off forever in your unrepentant sin? Well, think about King Ahab. Do you think the Lord is not patient and kind? All you have to do is look at the account of Ahab. The Lord is careful to show us through his word the evil that Ahab walked in, the extreme patience of God toward him so that we would have cause to believe and to trust and then to worship. Those will be kind of the big points that we'll hit this morning, beginning with 1 Kings 16, verse 29, and the evil of Ahab. On the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so Asa is now reigning in the southern kingdom of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, that is the northern ten tribes. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab's going to take evil to new heights in Israel. You know what it says? He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's not something any of us want said about us. Not something that we want defining God's perspective of us or how God records our life. We even see here there's such a thing as degrees of evil. You heard it said that, okay, every sin is sort of wicked in the sight of the Lord, which is true, but The Bible also has a category. There are degrees. Every sin may be one step on a staircase, but there are some sins that are further down the staircase. You can take it to new levels. Ahab does. He's going to found new degrees of evil, beginning there with Ahab scorning the law of the Lord. Ahab, verse 31, walked in the sins of Jeroboam which means he continued in that idolatrous system that Jeroboam instituted, trying to worship God who delivered them from Israel or from Egypt while also using golden calves and a false sort of religious system that Jeroboam had devised in his own mind. So 
Okay, we're going to worship Yahweh, but we're going to do it through these golden calves. All for the sake of manipulating people, maintaining power. In other words, Ahab had not learned the lesson of previous generations. With all that God had decreed through his prophets, with all that God had done to Jeroboam and his house, Ahab hasn't learned. Because you can learn a lot, not just from the Bible, but after that, though not inspired, you can learn things from history. And Ahab's not learning from history. As if that wasn't awful enough, it says there in verse 31, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians. He intermarried into an idolatrous nation. The very thing that God had commanded the people of Israel to absolutely not do when they got to the land. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations that are there before you, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, when God gives them over to you, you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods." Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. That's what they're supposed to do, not build temples for them, or construct them on their own, but burn them down, grind them to powder. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Be set apart. So just in case you're considering dating or marrying a non-Christian, this really should convince you otherwise. Passages like that. You know, missionary dating, missionary marriage does not work in the direction of God's purposes. It works in the direction of the devil's purposes. Which is why he tells us, even in Corinthians, to not be yoked to unbelievers. Firstly, in the church. Firstly, false teachers. But certainly even outside of that. We should love the people of the world. We should proclaim Christ to the people of the world. We should serve, but we shouldn't enter into covenants with them. That's what we see here. And Ahab just doesn't care. As if walking in the sins of Jeroboam were not enough, he's going to marry a girl from Sidon, but not just any girl from Sidon. He married a girl with a PhD in Baal worship. Like she's got graduate degrees in this stuff. She's an expert in the hatred of Israel's God. And as we'll see, she also has a PhD in cold-blooded murder. Chapter 18, verses 4, verses 13, we're going to learn how Jezebel is going to murder every true prophet of the Lord that she could get her hands on. Every one of them. A man named Obadiah is going to hide a hundred true prophets of the Lord in a cave to protect their lives. After Elijah, remember on Mount Carmel, the fire from heaven, then the slaughter of the priests of Baal, after that great deliverance there on Carmel, Jezebel's going to hear of it. And then threaten to murder Elijah in return. That'll be her response. 
1 Kings 21, after Naboth refused to disobey the Lord by selling his plot of land to Ahab, who wanted it for a garden, this vineyard, refused. Well, Jezebel is just going to plot then to have Naboth murdered. That'll be her response. That's whom Ahab happily took as a wife. That's who he goes to for counsel. That's who Ahab's going to let just run riot in the nation of Israel. As if that's not enough, we go back here to 1 Kings 16, verse 31. And Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal, built a house for Baal in Samaria. He also made an Asherah, this image of the false goddess Asherah. Because Baal was the false god of the Phoenician peoples, considered a god of fertility, and Asherah was his consort. Her name means goddess of motherhood and fertility. That's who Ahab's going to worship. That's who shrines and temples he's going to build. Just scorned the law of the Lord. But not just that, he's going to point B there, scorn the prophet of the Lord. First Kings 18 1 through 18, when Elijah is going to stand before him, this is 1 Kings 18, 17, Ahab asked, is it you, you troubler of Israel? That's how he saw Elijah. You're a troubler of Israel. Elijah's going to reply in next verse, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Of course, Ahab considered himself the gift to Israel, and Elijah was trouble. That's scary that sin is that distorting of your view of reality. That false worship will turn you that far upside down. Where you think you're the gift to God's people, and the true prophet is the enemy. When it's the opposite. Chapter 21, verse 20, Ahab says to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? That's what he called Elijah, my enemy. And really, he had no better friend in Israel. No better friend who'd actually speak the truth to him, who'd actually confront him in his evil, who would call him to repentance, who's God's word being delivered in his life. And yet to him, it was enemy. It just shows, it's another evidence that none of us are going to figure out salvation. None of us figure out faith in Christ. This is how we see God. This is how we see Christ, unless God intervenes. And in a work of his grace, he opens our eyes. In a work of his grace, he gives us a new heart to believe. Because the moment humanity could get their hands on God, what did we do to him? We crucified him. That's what we think of God. Ahab also scorned the name of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 20, or 1 Kings 20, verses 13 through 43, there's the story of Ahab and Ben-Hadad and these battles that are going to go between Israel and Syria. Where the Lord's going to deliver Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and his army into the hands of Ahab so that both Ahab and the Syrians would know that he is the Lord. That's the point God's making. It was, it's one of the points of the book of Exodus 
so that you would know that I'm the Lord, Israel. That's why I'm going to multiply my signs in Egypt, so that you would know I'm the Lord, so that Pharaoh would know, so that the whole world would know I'm the Lord. And Israel had forgotten. So now God's wanting to again prove, I am the Lord. I alone am God. It's one of the themes of Elijah's ministry. The Lord alone is God. And so the Syrians claimed in 1 Kings 20, verse 28, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys because Israel had defeated them in the hills and they said, well, let's let's go to the valleys. We'll we'll beat them there because this this Yahweh is a God of the hills, but not the valleys. To which the Lord said, well, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's what he says to Ahab. This is not about Ahab deserving or being sinless. This is about all right, they've picked a fight. And they've said that I'm just the God of hills and not everywhere else. Well, I'll prove them wrong. And so the Lord was vindicating his name among the nations and bringing the name of Ben-Hadad down. That's what Ahab should have seen and valued. This is the name of the Lord is at stake. That's what's happening here. And they're despising the name. Remember David when Goliath comes out and taunts God and his people, and he's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would taunt the armies of the living God? Like just the name of the God, of God being blasphemed. Well, that's what God's doing here. Okay, the Syrians have said, I'm not all that great. Well, I have, I'm going to prove through you and your army how great I am, and I'm going to give this whole multitude to you, and you're going to defeat them. And so the Lord delivered them over to Ahab for destruction. You know what Ahab does in 1 Kings 20, 34? said he made a covenant with Benadad and let him go. That's what he does. God's like, okay, you're going to destroy them so that my name will be vindicated. What does Ahab do? Makes a covenant with them. Lets them go free. Ahab scorned the people of the Lord. 1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 16, that story of Naboth's vineyard where Ahab looks out and here's from where he's living, there's Naboth's vineyard and it's Naboth's property. It's what was handed down from generation to generation. And Ahab liked the way it looked, liked the location. said, you know, I kind of want it for a garden. So he goes to Naboth and says, hey, well, sell it to me. And Naboth said, no. And the reason is because that would be wrong. God didn't want land being sold back and forth among families. He wanted it handed down from generation to because God had given it to them, allotted it to certain tribes, to certain families for them to hand down. And so to to just sort of give it away, to sell it. And at this stage, it's sort of a rejection of what God had decreed them to do. So Naboth's right in saying, no, that wouldn't be right to sell you this. Ahab goes home and like a, like a four-year-old, like crawls into bed, faces the wall and pouts. He was vexed and sullen. I say like a four-year-old. I guess as 40-year-olds we can do. As 70-year-olds, we know how to pout. We know how to face the wall and just sulk over not getting what we want. Well, that's what he's going to do. But then, of course, Jezebel is going to come in and say, hey, what's, what are you so sullen over? I said, and he tells the story. And Jezebel's like, well, are you not the king? In other words, you can take whatever you want. She just arranges for some false accusations to come about against Naboth, and they take him out and kill him. Arrange for his murder. He gladly lets his wife arrange for Naboth's murder so that he could go and take possession. No regard for Naboth's life. 
And he's the king. This is one of his, the subjects of his kingdom. Just gladly lets him be murdered so that he can get a piece of property. Scorn the law of the Lord. Scorn the prophet of the Lord. Scorn the name of the Lord. Scorn the people of the Lord. But then also he's going to scorn the word of the Lord. 1 Kings 22, 5 through 12. I saw how Ahab scorned the law of the Lord revealed by Moses, the prophet of the Lord, Elijah. And all this is simply setting up Ahab to despise any revelation of the Lord that he didn't like. Because in 1 Kings 22, if you turn over there, we have the story of Ahab wanting to go to war to take Ramoth Gilead back from Syria. And Jehoshaphat, who's the king at this time of the southern kingdom, a faithful king, a king who believes God and his word. And so Ahab's like, hey, let's go up, to, go up to battle with me. And Jehoshaphat wisely asked, well, should we not inquire of the Lord first? Let's do that. Jehoshaphat agrees to go, but in verse 5 there of chapter 22, he says, inquire first for a word of the Lord. So what Ahab does is sort of gather 400 of his prophets together. So 400 in whatever room they're in. And they all start promising that he's going to go up and he's going to have victory in this battle. But look at verse 7. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Really, literally, he's actually saying, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire? 400 prophets, and Jehoshaphat knows. He's looking at them going, these aren't prophets of the Lord. Isn't that fascinating that he can tell the difference? That's important for us to see, that we need to be able to tell the difference. When we hear somebody faithfully expounding God's word or somebody distorting it, somebody teaching rightly from scripture, somebody not. Somebody who's representing the gospel in truth, someone who's preaching lies. Jehoshaphat, there's 400 of them. They're all prophesying. They're all promising victory. He's looking around going, none of these guys are real prophets. So he just says to Ahab, is there not a prophet of the Lord that we can ask? Ahab replied, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And he didn't think there something was wrong on his end. Yeah, well, there, there is a prophet of the Lord, but I hate this guy because when he speaks about me, it's never positive. Always. Now, notice what his Ahab's standard isn't. It's not truth. It's not, yeah, when this prophet speaks, he speaks falsely. No, he doesn't care about, is it true? He only cares, is it good? Does it sound right to me? Does it land on me well? Again, this is scary to think that this is, our hearts can be more interested in hearing smooth words than true words. Pleasant words that cast us in a good light than the truthful words that cast us in a negative light, but yet call us to repentance. Ahab says, yeah, there's yet one man by whom we may inquire the Lord, but I hate him. He never prophesies good concerning me, 
only evil. Jehoshaphat responds, may the Lord not say, or may the king not say so. Like Jehoshaphat, as soon as it comes out of Ahab's mouth, Jehoshaphat's like, whoa, don't talk that way about God's prophets. Ahab hated anyone who actually spoke the word of the Lord. Rather than hear and correct what the word of God was confronting in his life, Ahab's just going to push it away from him. Surround himself with prophets willing to tell him what he wanted to hear. This is why the Apostle Paul is going to warn Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions, their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Something we ought to pray. We ought to beg God to never let happen in our life. Lord, don't ever... Don't ever let me go after teachers who will just scratch my itching ears. Don't ever let me accumulate teachers that suit my own passions. It's always a danger. Because the devil is happy to supply as many teachers as you want who will preach to you smooth things, who will say to you, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Ahab cannot endure sound teaching. Has accumulated for himself 400 teachers according to his own desires. He scorned the law of the Lord, the prophet of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the people of the Lord, and now the word of the Lord. This is why Scripture is going to say in 1 Kings 16, 33, that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It gets worse. Verse Kings 21, verse 25, I'll say there is none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. None like him who sold himself to do evil, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, meaning all the nations that were there before him whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Like he just goes back to being a Canaanite. Even though God had redeemed this people, brought them out of Egypt, put them in the land, taken them as his own, his treasured possession, given them his word, entered into covenant. Ahab just scorns all that. And goes after false gods the way the Amorites did. He sold himself to do evil the way a prostitute sells himself. That's why it uses that language. That's why false worship is called spiritual adultery. He sold himself, as a prostitute does, to idolatry. Social injustice, abuse of power, murder, who knows what else. For 22 years he's going to reign. Day after day, month after month, year after year, he will despise the Lord. And that's why we can't miss in the story the patience of God. Incredible patience. Which brings us to the next main point. A number of passages, I think, through these chapters show how, just how patient the Lord was with Ahab. I mean, just the fact that Elijah, the, the main sort of meat of Elijah's ministry, was all during the reign of Ahab. 
even that says something about the patience of God. All right, Ahab's reigning, and God is going to raise up one of the most significant prophets of the Old Testament during that reign. That's not a statement just of God's anger merely, but even God's patience, God's mercy. He's actually going to put a prophet like Elijah in front of Ahab constantly. The Lord does not leave Ahab alone and uninformed. In other words, the word of the Lord is a kindness. This is a gift to you. This is a treasure from God to you. That he would speak. That he would reveal himself. That he would declare to us what is true, what is right, what is good. That he would help us know the difference between the holy and the profane. He would actually show us the way of salvation. He would actually reveal the glory of Christ to us. That he would disclose all the purposes of his will. That he actually give us the whole counsel of God. It is a kindness. It is a gift. It is an expression of his mercy and his patience. Revelation is love from God. First Kings 17.1, the Lord's going to send Elijah to announce a drought on the land. Okay, perhaps this will wake Ahab up. Sends Elijah to announce there's going to be a drought because of the idolatry of the land. Maybe it'll bring him to his senses, but no. You just think about the patience of his revelation, 1 Kings 18, 36 and onward. 1 Kings 18, Elijah's going to confront Ahab again. And then Elijah's going to pose the question to the nation. This is going to be there on Mount Carmel. Verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And so he's going to sort of have this little arrangement where all the priests of Baal are going to get together, get their sacrifice, build their little altar, chop up what they need to chop up, put it on there, and call upon Baal to sort of bring fire from heaven to consume it. And Elijah's going to do the same, place his sacrifice on an altar to the Lord, but then what he's going to do, he's going to drench it with water. The prophets of Baal, they're going to set up their sacrifice, call on Baal all day long. They're going to cry out, they're going to cut themselves, no answer. Elijah going to set up an altar, put his sacrifice on it, and just drench it in water. Verse 36, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. It's going to make known who is this Lord. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Notice what he's appealing to, that God's glory, God's name, that your people would know it, that you're the Lord. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, 
They fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no, not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Fire from heaven should stir this remembrance of Sinai, of God appearing to the nation at Sinai, God giving his word at Sinai, God entering into covenant with them at Sinai. Lord, revealing himself in fire and smoke. And there's this great purging of the priests of Baal, a sign of wrath. So surely this is going to bring Ahab to his senses. But no. He watched all this. But no change. First Kings 20, the Lord is going to give that incredible military victory to Ahab over the armies of Syria and Ben-Hadad that we talked about. Because the king of Syria had blasphemed the Lord. And the Lord had wanted Ahab to vindicate his name among the nations, perhaps to bring Ahab back, but no. So the Lord sent another prophet to confront Ahab in chapter 20, verses 35 through 42. Though the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria because of the preaching of that prophet, there's no real repentance. So one of the other things you see in Ahab's life is worldly sorrow. This prophet's going to come and confront him in chapter 20, verse 35 through 42, and he's going to be sullen and vexed. He's going to go back to his house, but no repentance, no change. After the murder of Naboth in 1 Kings 21, Elijah's going to confront Ahab at the vineyard of Naboth, going to proclaim disaster on him and upon his family. And when Ahab heard the words of the Lord... This is in 1 Kings 21, verse 27. It says, He tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. In other words, he humbled himself. Just this one little turn. You know what God does? God says to Elijah, you see how Ahab's humbled himself? So I won't bring disaster upon him in his days but in his son's days. That's amazing. After all this, after all that Ahab's yet to do, just one turn of humility, one moment where his heart's broken, and God says, I'll take that, and I'll spare all this coming on you in your lifetime, and I'll destroy your household later. That's how patient God is. That's how generous God is. And what an opportunity for Ahab. Just the Lord keeps giving him opportunities, gives him one more chance. Now, truly, he's going to repent and believe and bring revival in the nation. Surely now he's going to tear down all these idols and call people to return to the Lord. But no, he's just going to go back to his same old ways. No evidence of genuine faith. Though this incident of of humility is genuine, his heart isn't made new. His heart doesn't change. It's short-lived. No lasting heart change. So that in chapter 22, verse 20, the Lord is going to ask this question in heaven. Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? God's patience has come to an end. Toward Ahab. 
Sends him prophets, sends him revelation, sends him people, sends him signs, sends him opportunity after opportunity. Even one little turn of humility and God extends a kind of mercy for Ahab it's short-lived. He just goes right back to what he was doing. So now in chapter 22, God's like, okay, who's going to entice Ahab to go to battle so that I can kill him there? That's where we all have to be careful because it's, it's tempting to read the story of Ahab and, again, just put it far away and go, man, he's really wretched, which is true. But then to think that somehow we're not capable like, how many parties have you ever been to where you go around the room and people say, well, hey, give, give words to describe yourself. How often have you heard the word evil given at the dinner party? What are words you would use to describe yourself? Uh, evil? We don't, right? Even in the flesh, we don't think of ourselves in that light because we can always sort of offer up examples of those who are worse. None of us like to use the word evil to describe the condition of our souls apart from grace, apart from Christ. And speaking to us as Christians, listen to Colossians 1.21, the Apostle Paul says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's saying that's what you were before God intervened in Christ in your life. Alienated, hostile, to God, doing evil. Colossians 3.5, he tells us to put off evil desires. Why would he say that? Why would Paul say to Christians in Colossians 3.5, put off evil desires. Don't embrace them. Unless we really are, apart from the grace of God in Christ, like Ahab, Capable of scorning God, of scorning the Lord, scorning his word. Capable of true evil. That while the quantity of Ahab's evil may be greater, the quality of it, the nature of it, is no different. He's a typical human being. What is evil? Even this is the question up for debate, right? What evil is, how you define it, who gets to determine what evil is. That's why I praise God for his word, that we can look at his word and see how he defines it. Any degree of wickedness in his sight, any violation of his moral law, any inclination for immorality on his terms, any godless desire, any impulse to harm according to his definition of harm, any ill will or cruel intention, any happiness in another person's suffering or pain, any hardness of heart toward the affliction of another, any callousness toward the oppressed, any act that lowers God and demeans God, any thought that degrades others, any idolatry, even a hint of it, any corruption of power, any thought, emotion, action, attitude, any word that is contrary to the holy nature of God is evil in his sight. And we don't want to wait to judgment day to learn that. When the books are opened, 
And he begins to recount deeds that he, he defines as wrong. He defines as evil. Again, we live in an age of self-determination. Right? That's one of the virtues of our day. To, to determine for yourself who you are, what you are, your life, everything else. Rather than to actually hear from God what he determines to be true. What he calls me. What he says I am. Whether in the flesh, apart from grace, what he calls me. Or in Christ, forgiven, made new, his child, what he now calls me. Romans 2, 3-4. through 4, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, everybody shows that they really do believe in right and wrong through their judgmentalness of others. And so Paul says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So he says to you, don't presume on it. Don't presume upon his patience, his kindness, his forbearance, knowing that that's meant to lead you to repentance. So there is the patience of God's revealed word. There's also the patience of delayed judgment. So when people ask you, like, why, why is there so much evil in the world if God is good? Well, because he's delaying judgment. Because he sees so much evil, he will dissolve the universe. He will melt it like a furnace. That's serious. That's a lot. That's doing something about evil. The question is not if God is good, why is there evil in the world? Rather, if the world is so evil, then why is God so patient? That's a better question. Why is the world still here? Why is God so kind to me? Those are better questions. Answer one is, well, to bring us to repentance and faith. Just as we read in Romans 2, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Or 2 Corinthians 3.8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, if suffering in your life lingers, if hardship in your life lingers, if things keep being drawn out, be careful about demanding that God bring it to an end quickly. Who here wants God to be rash? To act quickly on everything. In other words, when suffering lingers, when difficulty lingers, when pandemics linger, when masks linger, when restrict, when all these things linger, let it remind you of the patience of God. Let it remind you of the slowness of God as a whole. And realize that it's because of his slowness we came to faith. It's because of his patience, because he doesn't rush stuff. He brought us to repentance. 
It doesn't mean we, it's not okay to, or it is okay to sort of want things to end, to pray for hardship to be over, to pray for affliction to come to an end, to pray for, but to demand, to be bitter or resentful if God doesn't rush to resolve things, is to ask God to be impatient. So it's important when he says, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why doesn't Jesus come back? Well, there's more children he's bringing in. More sheep he's gathering. And aren't you glad he didn't come back the day before you came to faith in Christ? And so how much more do we wait for all God's purposes, for all his people throughout all the world to come to fulfillment? Because it says, verse 10, 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It is coming, and it will come fast. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Even just that idea just of heavenly bodies, of the whole heavens, of stars. Think about, go look up what most stars burn at temperature-wise. Like, how hot is the sun? It's a star. God will burn it up. I mean, that's just kind of mind-blowing. Whatever heat that is that melts stars, that burns up things, that burn at thousands and thousands of degrees, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So why does the Lord delay in coming and bring judgment with him? Well, that those appointed to salvation will come to repentance and faith and be saved. Why does the Lord endure the evil of this world and delay wrath? Well, so that all his children will come to their senses. So that all his, his children will believe. That's why he waits. But also to make known the glory of his mercy and his grace. Romans 9, 22 through 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Or it's God's going to endure all the blasphemies of Pharaoh, the disobediences of Pharaoh, in order to make his wrath known at the proper time, in order to show all the Israelites just how gracious and merciful he is. That you're going to put blood on your doorposts and I'm going to spare your firstborn children. Not so with the Egyptians. I'm going to endure them with much patience in order to pour my wrath out at the proper time so that you would see how gracious I am to you. How merciful I am toward you. Who deserve the same fate but that I spared. So the Lord endured with much patience the scorn of Ahab, pouring out justice at the proper time in order to show just how gracious and merciful he is to us. This is a cause for worship. A cause for worship. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, as the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, of whom I am the foremost. Worst sinner he knew. 
was himself. He looks at Ahab and he goes, yeah, I'm worse than that. He looks at others in scripture and goes, yeah, I'm, I, I'd, if there was a club for sinners, I'd be the president. I'd be in charge of that. That's, that's his take on himself. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate and display his perfect patience. Like That's why I found mercy, so that Jesus could show the whole world how patient he is. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And listen how he, what he says next. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just compels him to worship. I mean, it's almost like he almost ended the book right there, 17 verses into the first chapter. He almost just stopped it and shut it down when he reflected on the patience of God toward him in bringing him to salvation, the chief of sinners. He just gives, he just said, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever, amen. That's what the gospel is meant to do in us. That's what reflecting on God's grace toward us in salvation is meant to provoke. Not self-pity, not woe is me, not, oh, I'm so terrible, God's so great, I'm so terrible. Oh, worship, adoration. The Christians do not prove the brilliance of Christians, but the kindness of God. The Christians are not evidence for the goodness of Christians, but the goodness of God. The Christians are not a testimony to their own perfection, but to God's grace. And are we okay with this? Are we okay with testimony working this way? With somebody finding out, coming to us and we share, yeah, that I've been forgiven, I've been made new, I'm a child of God, I've been redeemed. And someone looking at us going, you? Yeah. And like, oh my, I know. Wow, that is a patient God you serve. Yeah, no kidding. That's testimony. Testimony isn't, look how much better I am than the rest of the world. No, it's, imagine what I'd be without Jesus. And imagine what others in the world would be if they had Jesus. Look at how he's changed you, transformed you. That's testimony. Look at what you were. Look at what you would be without him. Because often there'll be certain non-believers you look worse than. Because everybody comes from different places on a different kind of road. God's using them to tell a different kind of story. But yet the title of that story for all of us is the immeasurable riches of his grace. Why did God save me? To show the world how patient he is. Why did God save you? To show the extremities of his grace. And what's that supposed to produce? Worship. Praise. Adoration that the whole world would know that he is the Lord. In Micah 6, the Lord is laying out a case against the nation of Israel. And they stand condemned, listen to what the Lord says, because they kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab and have walked in their counsels, Micah 6, 16. 
So he's laying out this case against Israel. And the reason is because you followed after Ahab. Because you did his works. You followed the counsel of his house. But then listen to what he says in Micah 7. Very next chapter, verse 18. Or Micah said he's going to announce the mercy and grace of God for all those who repent and believe in chapter 7. And then the prophet Micah is going to proclaim in Micah 7. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. It's Micah 7. After all that he says in Micah 6 about Ahab and following after Ahab, he says, no, but I'm going to spare my remnant from among this group. And it's going to compel Micah in chapter 7 to worship. Who's a God like our God? Ask that of any other person who believes in any other religion in the world. Just say, in your religion, how are sins forgiven? It's fascinating. They're not in other religions. How are they atoned for? How is your holy God appeased? There's, there's no answer in the religion of the world. Instead, it's just, well, I, I work it off. I just pay for it. And then you can say, well, so you're dying with a hope that whatever God you serve is no better than you. I mean, that's what you're dying with. You're going to die with the hope that your God's no better than you are. But yet in this, we know there's this infinite gap between the holiness of God and us, and yet God bridges that gap through Christ, redeems us, transforms us, changes us, reconciles us to God, and brings us near. And that's why Micah goes, who's a God like our God? Who actually pardons iniquity, who forgives sin, who provides an atonement, who doesn't retain his anger forever because of his steadfast love. He's actually going to give his own son as the sacrifice, give his own son as the payment for your sin. He's going to give his own son as the one who's going to appease his wrath and justice so that we can go free. And Micah's like, who's like that? Well, none. The Lord gave Ahab 22 years of warnings. 22 years of opportunities to hear and believe, not including all the years before he became king. That's just during his reign. Yet he refused to see his evil, refused to turn from it, refused to submit to God, refused to seek salvation from the Lord. And you know now he regrets it. As tragically that is, now he regrets it. But as you look at his life as a follower of Christ, do you See the patience of God toward you, the mercy of God toward you, the grace of God toward you. Does that compel you to worship? I just think we ought to be the most thankful people in the whole world all the time, right? All the time. You know, masks, we can go, yeah, they're hard, but you know what? I'm forgiven. <laughs> so thankful. It's hard to to endure this or to go through this, but you know what? I'm redeemed. Praise God, I'm just thankful. So even in your relationships, in your gatherings, in your families, as we get together, do do we just share the depth of our gratitude toward God constantly? 
Does the world know us as a thankful people? A grateful people? A people who are honest about suffering, honest about pain, facing it, but yet full of thanksgiving? Do you receive the word of God as a kindness from God? As a gift from God? Do you cherish it or scorn it? I mean, just to think that we just, in this country, we get to own as many of these as we want. Get a new one every year. 4,000 different translations. There's not, but, you know, several different translations. We just get to leave them laying around our house. We get to go sit in coffee shops, open them up, read it. This This is the word of God. This is God speaking. What a gift. And are these the words that are most prominent in our lives? Are these the words that have the most control over our affections? You know, gossip is usually, hey, can you believe what so-and-so said? Or how much of Twitter or whatever else is out there, it's human words. Can you believe what this said or what this said or what this said? How much outrage is about what this politician said or what? When we... We've got better words to think about. I can, it's fine to say some of those things, but more often we ought to say, can you believe what God said here? Can you believe that this is what he declared? Can you believe that this is what he wrote and disclosed? Can you believe this is what he did? And just sharing that with each other constantly. So as a Christian, do you see the depth of God's mercy and grace toward you? you see all your evil forgiven in Christ? you see all your sins washed away by his blood? Do you see the riches of your inheritance in him? If so, then just spend your days in wholehearted worship constantly. What a privilege to gather on a Sunday morning on this day together and just worship. Just hear his word proclaimed and respond in worship to sing in worship, to pray in worship, to encourage one another as expressions of worship. As Jesus said to the woman at the well, we worship what we know. We're not in the dark. Give glory to Christ. Give praise to Christ. Don't be downcast and sullen the way Ahab was so constantly downcast and sullen. It doesn't mean, yeah, be sober, See the gravity of life. Be honest about affliction. Don't be fake and Pollyanna-ish. But in that gravity, be glad. In that soberness, rejoice. In facing your afflictions, be thankful. And that's where the life as a Christian is sort of a life of things being put together that don't usually go together. Suffering and thanksgiving. Wait and sobriety and rejoicing. Cast down and mistreated and yet full of happiness because of who God is and what God's done. Don't be anxious and fretful. Be at peace. Don't harden your heart toward your neighbor. Love them. Don't be devoted to evil but to Jesus. Don't be quiet with the good news. Proclaim it. Right? And that's That's where it leads us is to, don't we want everyone to know this God? Who is a God like ours? Who pardons iniquity? Who is a God like ours? Who's this patient? Who redeems his people because of his steadfast love? Let's tell others about him. Introduce others to him.
So the implications, again, are, are, are great. We'll leave a few minutes for questions or comments or reflections. Yeah, anything that comes to mind you want to share? Dan. They're a bigger what? They're a bigger pain the second of So I find that on Sunday I'm feeling on top of the world. By Monday my family is wondering whether he's a Christian. By Wednesday everybody is wondering who is this guy. So how does one maintain that attitude of worship from Monday through Saturday and not yeah. just from Sunday? Yeah, yeah, that's good. How does, how do we, yeah, so the question is, how do we not just on Sunday have that attitude of worship, but even throughout the rest of the week? And I mean, in one way, I want to say, yeah, until we're home in glory, we're, we're fickle creatures. And we're very forgetful. I remember a young believer saying to me once, as they were reading through the Bible, he said, wow, God seems to repeat himself a lot. Yes, he does. Because we forget a lot. And so there is a way in which normal Christian life is up and down, where our affections do waver, where when we come to faith in Christ and we're new babes in Christ, and even growing in Christ, we go through these different periods of time where we're not as pleasant, where we go through phases of judgmentalness, of just bitterness toward the world, of impatience with other believers, with any number of things, or just week to week. So to one degree, I want to say that that's, that's part of the battle. In another way, I want to say that's why we're meant to eat this word every single day and arise in the morning thinking of God and arise in the morning and feed on his word and be reminded of his works. It's why we need one another, the church, in each other's lives. It's why we need other people helping us and reminding us. That's why we need people sort of sharing, hey, I listened to what you said to that person. That sounded pretty angry or frustrated. Or, hey, I'm seeing how you're dealing with this and you seem really anxious to me or really worried. Or really... And then receiving that, not as Ahab scorned it, but receiving the correction of others and repenting and looking to Christ. And that's why we need to gather together and just talk about the great works of God. And remember with gratitude what he's done. And so we need that each and every day. Um, it's also why I think we need the Holy Spirit and living in us and being attentive to his spirit, being soft to his spirit, not stamping down your conscience when the spirit is raising the alarm, but learning to, yeah, to be humble to be receptive to what the Spirit is burdening in us through his word. It's also another reason to not play too much with the world. Because I think there is this sense sometimes that we can just kind of go on excursions out into the world and then come back and be okay. When realizing, wow, I'm vulnerable. I'm prone to being misled. I'm prone to fleshliness. I'm prone to worldliness. So I want to be careful what I play with each and every day. And I want the prominent voice in my life to be God's voice. Um, so it would be a few things. Maybe one more question before we wrap up. 
or comment? Yeah, Chris. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, yeah, the question is just, so Ahab had this one moment after the incident with Naboth where God confronts him through the prophet and, and he humbles himself. He mourns what he's done. And God sees it and actually calls, see how Ahab has humbled himself. But then yet he doesn't really, isn't changed or transformed. He's not saved. And so just, okay, what do we do? That's kind of scary. And so in one way, the answer is yes, it is. It is scary to think that you can have this one moment where your heart is sort of softened, this one moment where you're responsive to the word of God that, that, that is genuine but not transformative, not actual regeneration. Not, and I think that's the part for us to see is in any given moment, a person can have softness to the things of God. In any given moment, somebody may grieve their sin for one reason or the other. But the real heart transformation regeneration lasts. It doesn't mean you don't go back to sin. It doesn't mean you don't ever sin again. It means you don't go back to worshiping idols and scorning the Lord who redeemed you. And so there is a way in which this one little blip was just a humble response in that moment and not real faith, repentance, transformation before God. And so what we know in Christ is something very different. What it means is somebody could come to a service and have a response toward God, if you will. And, and this is one of the reasons why we don't do at the end of services like invitations to come forward. And, because in any given moment, somebody might have this sort of emotional response to what's going on or some humble response. Come forward and, and think that was it. When really it's, no, there's real life transformation shows itself. And real repentance and faith that then abides because we're new creations in Christ. And that's why Hebrews is going to be written the way it is. That's why some of Romans, Paul's saying what he's saying, that if you're a new creation in Christ, then it's going to look different. Um, That faith and repentance is going to last. Not that you're going to be sinless. Otherwise, you wouldn't need repentance ongoing. Um, so it doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. That's not what this is. It means Ahab was never really his. This was a momentary surface level shift that within days he's back to normal. But let me pray for us. Well, Father, we want to express to you our gratitude, our awe, our thanksgiving, our praise, our worship, because you are patient, you are long suffering. You are generous. You are kind. And in your kindness, you brought us to repentance and faith in Christ. You united us to your son. You forgave our sins through your son. You adopted us through your son. You reconciled us through your son. You have prepared us for glory through your son. Now make us, we pray, excited about that news, thankful for that news, eager to share that news with others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.